We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. To get a building built, there needs to be a contract between the builder and the client. Traditionally, the architect stays involved to administer the contract while the building is being built as per the certified documents. More recently, design and construct contracts that reduce the architect's involvement during construction have become commonplace. Many clients like these contracts because they have the capacity to change the project, usually so it can be built cheaper and faster. But many architects worry that by reducing their involvement in the built works, the quality of a project can suffer. Novation contracts are some of the most discussed contracts that fit this new model, and while there are some risks to quality, a lot of architects say when these risks are managed correctly, there's less to worry about than first thought. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Nick Lorenz, Sean McGiven, and Tom Henneker about the advantages and risk management required when working with novation contracts. Almost every large project being built in Australia right now is being built using some form of design and construct contract. Nick Lorenz is a senior architect at Wilson Architects based in Brisbane, a practice that's been operating continuously for around 140 years, who specialises in institutional projects for universities and schools. They prefer to deliver projects across the country through joint ventures with other firms and often use novation contracts. Nick and I discuss how Wilson Architects use novation contracts and how they achieve good results using them. Okay, Nick. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. It's really great to have a chat to you about Novation and how you're using it. Are there a couple of projects that you worked on recently where you did use a Novation contract and how did they pan out? Yeah. Uh, so uh, in particular, last year we completed a project at the uh, University of Western Australia at St. Catherine's College, it was for a indigenous housing for students and we initially won that competition in a limited design competition and we did some sort of further planning it went on hold and it was all uh, predicated on getting a, a tranche of funding from the state and federal government that was part of a larger funding group or uh, a deal of money and we were just a small component of that so we were initially working just with the client directly and we've been engaged by them to do a sort of concept scheme. Then they are involved a project manager as well, a local project manager. And then they were the ones that suggested to the client that the best delivery method would be uh, getting some early contractor involvement to a sort of 30% design. And then we'd be novated uh, to them to a sort of 80% design completion, which would be then the, the funding trigger. When an architect gets novated to the builder, does that process look like? How does that work? Well, traditionally, uh, nothing changes. It's just that um, under a strict innovation contract, who you're principally engaged to just transfers under the same contract conditions from the client to the builder. But obviously, the prerogative of the client and the builder, particularly if the builders said that they've got a target price that they're aiming for to deliver this contract, some of the aspirations of the project the client may have 
are now to be aligned with the budget that the builder has introduced. And sometimes those two things don't reconcile. Right. Okay. So you started your design work with one budget in mind. And then when you got to say 30%, then the builder takes over the kind of budgetary management side and they have a different budget that they're trying to achieve. Uh, well, it's not different. It's just it's a capped budget, I guess. Um, and so uh, I guess taking a step backwards, the client's got an aspirational brief and they're sort of suggesting that we want a facility that's this big for this many students that has this sort of type of support space. We'd like it to be multifunctional. And so we take all those things into a brief and rationalise that and, and work that back into a return brief that is a sort of planning scheme that's sort of full of our ideas and that always is well received generally the client but then what we do is we take it to market to certain builders and then they come in and say well you know we think we can deliver this scheme for this price and then you work through the next bit once they select the builder that they're preferred working with but it's a bit of a case of comparing apples and oranges sometimes because the design is not complete enough to really interrogate it that much and say, well, this is a fixed price. And so there's a lot of assumptions that need to get made. So if someone's saying it's $10 million and the next person saying it's $20 million, uh, you know, it sort of can be a hard task sometimes to rationalise where that discrepancy is coming from. Right. So why did the work need to be done in that way? Well, I think part of it is done because you can accelerate the whole process with more certainty because the builder is taking that risk where they are saying, well, where we will sort of guarantee these price targets because that's their prerogative. Now, that can be at the expense of the ambition of the project, but what it does help do is align your champagne taste that may be on a beer budget that some clients have. Um, and the other important thing was that for a sort of non-for-profit college, they only have limited revenue streams, which is essentially selling a bed to someone for a year. And so the amount of income that they can get is capped. And so the last thing that they want to be doing is taking out a loan to build a facility that suddenly is costing twice what they originally could otherwise afford with no way of sort of ever recouping those costs. And so I think those sort of things were the primary driver of saying, well, we let's get someone else in to take the risk and, and we'll still largely get what they perceive as the original design. Okay. So if the builders come in and they're doing some cost cutting to achieve this sort of newer budget, which is the champagne result on the beer budget. Well, everyone, everyone um, wants to pay less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just uh, economics, I guess. So what... what generally gets cut out? Is there any sort of downsides to, to the cuts that seem to be made? Well, in the first instance, what you're hoping that the builder is doing is that you've put enough information into your early scheme to make sure that it's feasible. You know that it can be built. Uh, you've worked with some consultants along the way that have hopefully been engaged. And in this case, they were to give preliminary advice. And so there's things like we were going to use precast panels to do all the load-bearing support for these small spans that end up being each student room, those sorts of things, whereas the builder sort of looks at that and analyses the amount of crane time that would be required, assesses the cost of the crane, having a mobile crane versus a stationary tower crane, 
the relative costs of that. And then they do some analysis on it and say, look, it's much better for our program for you to decouple the structure from the essentially the wall partitions. So they might then come along and say, well, we'd like to just do that out of lightweight partition that's fire rated so we can get the structure up quicker because at the end of the day, it takes us four months less to build and that's four less months that we need to be on site so our overheads can be much more reduced and there's a significant saving there to the project. So that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is you've picked a tile that's $60 a square metre. In our allowances that a $20 a square metre tile was adequate and that's all we've allowed. So you need to go back and find a tile that's a third of the price of what you originally selected. Or we might go back and say, well, actually, we've had too much tile in there. So we want to use that more expensive rate and we'll do less tile, those sorts of things. They're the conversations that you can have along the way. Right. Okay. So I guess if the builder's coming back, so say you've specified the precast concrete and then they come back with a different building system, as long as everything stands upright, does that mean that there's not necessarily a downgrading of the project? Yeah, I think that. I mean, it's probably incumbent on us to get the performance requirements into what the wall needs to do. And I think that's a difference between if you were to do sort of do a traditional design it's very prescriptive, whereas in the Novated type arrangement, it's actually more beneficial to be performance driven uh, because that gives you more to react to when someone comes along and says, well, you know, I don't like the tile because of this. And you say, well, there's these performance requirements that the tile must do. And, you know, that $20 tile doesn't meet that performance. And so you shouldn't have allowed the lower rate because you still need to achieve these performances. So then the conversation then can be around performance rather than the prescriptive outcome Um, and so the tiles is probably not a good example but certainly the makeup or composition of a wall is where you know there may be sound reduction qualities and fire rated performances that the wall needs to achieve between rooms. The example that you were using was that something from the university college or from the uh, primary school that you worked on? Uh, yes, that was from the University College. That's right. And so that was really, uh, we'd made an assumption with the st- structural engineers about what we thought was the best way of moving forward. And then conversely, the opposite occurs. The, the builders say, oh, well, we allowed to do this one way. And the structural engineer might come back and say, well, actually, that doesn't work structurally because the beam depth needs to be much greater now. And we hadn't allowed it to carry all this weight. And once you redesign the building to what the builder's preferred option might be, even just in a quick preliminary schematic, the dynamic changes and their assumption about it just being a flat slab, now it needs to have sort of reinforced beams through it. And that is vastly more expensive than the first option. And so it's just working through balancing those different options as to what is the optimal outcome. Right. So what is the misconception of what architects are meant to do that might have brought about innovation contracts? Well, for architects through our training, through university, uh, I think for us, we always hold the design as sacrosanct. Um, You know, that is the ultimate thing that we should be trying to optimise and and get the best outcome for the client. And they'll really appreciate us for, you know, giving them a fabulous design. But sometimes a client isn't looking for that per se. They're more about what's their, how much can they deliver? And I think builders have traditionally been very good at particularly large institutional clients like state government departments and those sorts of things at spruiking their perceived benefits. Uh, And I think that's one reason that early contractor involvement 
and innovation processes have come about. And secondly, I think many examples of architects being involved in or driving a program or project where the costs aren't able to be controlled or contained adequately. And, and also, you know, things are too complicated for what the ambition of the project might otherwise be. And I think in retrospect, clients may be looking at that thinking, well, the architect wasn't the best person to um, look after that for me. And, you know, I've had to pay a lot more than what I originally allowed. And either I can't afford it or, or I'm left paying for something that was a lot more than I originally intended. And if I get someone else controlling that, then I don't get exposed to that risk. That my prices will essentially be capped and I'll still get the same outcome. So if the innovation contract, let's say we didn't use it, what would the arrangement look like so that the costs were handled appropriately? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think even in a traditional scenario, uh, we should be able to handle the costs working with a QS. So it's a quantity surveyor. That's right. Sorry, a quantity surveyor. But as a builder will tell you, when you're haggling over variations, the QS won't build anything for you. They're just there to provide a rate. And so whether they're in tune with the market or not is one thing. And they're not there able to provide buildability advice a lot of the time either. And also commenting on, say, decisions that might influence programming of how a sequence of how something might go together. That's where a builder can be quite good. Whether you need the mechanism where you get transferred to being engaged by the builder needs to occur. I think that is possibly not something that is the only way of doing it. And certainly there are other procurement methodologies out there where you can get early contractor advice or an input, uh, things like a project that might be procured through a managing contractor style where the managing contractor would be brought on as a consultant like you are as the architect um, and then you sort of do trade packaging and, and those sorts of things it's a less adversarial way of doing things perhaps i mean innovation doesn't necessarily end up um, in the adversarial uh, nature that a, a traditional uh, lump sum project can because if you just go in hard and try and make everything as cheap as possible and then a builder aggressively tries to make their money back through variations in a traditional sense that's never really that fun for anybody because everybody's really set up to be at loggerheads. Innovation, the difficulty is, is that you can be telling the builder all sorts of great things and it's their prerogative to otherwise ignore you. And that's the, probably the trap for um, architects in a innovation scenario is that the builder is there to take your advice, but you're not the authority to tell them that they must do something. Hmm. I mean, they can't properly ignore you if you're able to show them a building code that something needs to be adhered. Oh, oh, absolutely. Sort of not talking about that. Yeah, because that's right. There's all those statutory uh, requirements that they need to do something and they're sort of the performance-based type things. Uh, what I'm sort of referring to is the extent of something or we wanted that to be plaid in a stone and they're trying to say, well, you know, oh, we never allowed for that, so you're just going to get paint finish. You know, what you're trying to do is then go back to what did your unresolved documents early indicate? And, you know, a lot of the time no one's haven't had enough time or thought to to be able to work that, that out early and for it to be allowed. So then you end up in the, well, how do we negotiate 
the outcome here. And if you've got a builder that's collaborative and listening to you, you can try and work out a way to get something done, depending on what their time pressures are. But there's nothing in the contract which says they need, need to be like that. And so they can otherwise then say, well, no, this is what we're doing. And, you know, you can get shut out. And that's probably the risk of, you know, it's a relationship-based thing rather than, you know, there's not a contractual arrangement where you can definitively say this is the outcome. As you say, it's a very relational thing. And in a traditional contract, the architect still has direct connection to the client. And in an innovation contract, the client's speaking more directly to the builder and then the builder's talking to the architect. What are clients missing by uh, not working directly with an architect? I mean, if they've already told the builder that they want to achieve a particular price, are, are they missing anything in particular by not working directly with the architect? Well, I, I think there's a misconception for clients about an ovation arrangement. And this isn't for all clients, but certainly some in our experience is you start working with them and it's like we're all on the same page and then they essentially through a um, contract mechanism tell you to start working for somebody else but they still have this sort of understanding that that relationship that you had where they can ask you to do things or say you know what let, let's do this or let's achieve that 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 relationship is fractured a little bit because you're no no longer working for them and that loyalty doesn't exist because if it was meant to exist, they wouldn't have essentially sold you to the builder. But I don't think they realise that your loyalty has changed now contractually to the builder and assisting them uh, and that's your priority. Um, Ultimately, the client is still paying for everything through the builder, but when you're having discussions about extensive things or what the quality of something might be and you know you're looking at substitutions and those sorts of things and then the client comes back and says oh you know that's a bit of a disappointing outcome you know I think that's part of they're not part of that conversation and so their expectations then are sometimes misaligned and for them unless they're right on top of it and and are purveying over everything that's happening they don't necessarily know what decisions are being made along the way um, through, you know, the relationship. Well, it seems like uh, even though you used an ovation contract on the college project, uh, the result was really good. And you've said that some of the risks that can happen with an ovation contract, but uh, did you want to say what went really well on that particular project because you used an ovation contract? Yeah, uh, well, one of the things that uh, was important about an ovation contract is it had a project delivery date, which was probably otherwise unrealistic in a traditional procurement strategy it needed to be delivered early um, and that was contingent on the funding approval I just don't think it probably could have been achieved where you might have done an early works contract or there's some demolition and things that needed to be got through but um, it enables you to with with authority proceed on knowing that you're going to be able to deliver the project on budget because you're being managed in a way by the builder but that then opens up the ability for you to procure something in a much swifter time frame and it was one of those sort of contracts where it needed to be delivered by this date and it was opened for the the academic year and the first intake because if we didn't make that academic window then they didn't need it for another year and that certainly wasn't what the funding model was meant to uh, support yeah so that 
was probably the main advantage in taking an evaded contract and getting the builder involved very early and then they can make their overlay on what something needs to be. They can work with you and there's certainly advantages to that. In this case, the, the building was able to be delivered on budget and on time. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for being part of the podcast and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing more from Wilson Architects in the future. Thanks, Daniel. Sean McGiven is one of the directors of Kerry Hill Architects, based in their Fremantle office in Western Australia. He was originally based in Belfast Island and moved to Australia in 2011 when the opportunity presented itself, and after being with Kerry Hill Architects for seven years, became a director in 2018. He has been involved in a diverse range of work, including competitions, standalone houses, as well as large-scale commercial projects. Sean and I discussed the importance of the relationships between the different stakeholders using novation contracts and how different roles can benefit the execution of different contracts. Thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. We asked you to be part of the podcast because you've got heaps of experience with design and construct contracts. And one of those projects was the OTB Tower with Mervac. Um, did you want to tell us a little bit about that project and how it was set up in terms of its DNC contract? Yeah, so we uh, had a lot of experience from Asia of having worked with, I suppose, architects of record. We would have been retained as design architects, but in Australia, obviously, that context is a little bit different. We don't have architects of record here in Australia, so that either have the, the, the system where you have architects novated to the contractor or you have architects that can remain client side. And, and in this particular project, it was part of the overall Cathedral Square development, of which you probably know the Como, the Treasury project. And then the building behind it was called the David Markham Justice Centre. So that was split into two clients. And we were the architects for both the clients with for the Como, the Treasury, which was a, a more traditional procurement route. And then for the David Markham Justice Centre, which was essentially a, a DNC, probably slightly different than DNC, the way we traditionally understand it, but it was a DNC typology. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that there was, on some of your projects internationally, you've got an architect of record. Do you want to explain what that role technically does? Well, essentially, you know, if you're you're based in Australia and you're doing a project in, say, I don't know, India, for example, you want to need somebody who has the local knowledge of construction licenses and construction standards. So really you need to work with somebody who will then document the building to the legal standards of that country and therefore they would become what's called the architect of record. Even though you sit with the client as the design architect, yeah, the client would also engage this local architect to make sure that the construction detailing was all carried out to the, the laws of that particular country. So it often has to happen quite regularly with you know, working in international scenarios because you're not going to know the licensing requirements for every country, you know. So... In a similar vein, we stayed client-side with Mervac Development as the, uh, the, the lead design architects. And then Hassel were novated to the contractor. Well, it wasn't so much novated because they weren't on board before. So 
they, they were appointed as the documenting project architects who would then take the, the documents through construction, well, documentation and construction. And that's the way we, I suppose, we, the authorship of the project was finalized with us being the design architect and then being the project architect. Right, okay. And through this process, you, you've mentioned that it was actually a really great result on this particular project for, for yourself and Kerry Hill. What do you think made the use of this contract so successful when people seem to be a little bit hesitant about using Novation or DNC contracts? Well, look, we did the original tender documents. So we took the design up to, I suppose, what has been commonly known as this 30% construction documentation package to go to tender. And really, the, to me, the key part of really trying to resolve any potential you know, scope or design questions later on was by trying to capture as much scope as possible in the documents prior to going to tender. And by scope, I mean kind of design scope. And it's trying to draw from all the tools that you can possibly have within the offices. It's not just that 2D drawings, but it's whether it can be hand markups, it can be 3D renders, um, even just sketches of, of details to show, I suppose, profiles and intent. It's not going to be something that you can actually build from. You're going to have to work, and that's the, that's the whole purpose of a DNC contract, is you de- de- risk the client side of it because you put design onto the contractor and then allow the contractor the scope to actually build things where they find more palatable to their, their risk profile while also being economic for the builder also. Right, okay. So does that mean that it worked well because you could document what the end result should look like and then the builder could document or design how to get there? Yeah, essentially that's that's what we felt at that stage was really important to us to try and make sure that the profiles, like things like the profiles of the glazing systems and the intent of how to lay out stone and the detailing of stonework around the base, and that all of that was captured within the documents with a certain degree of regard to obviously you don't try and propose something that in the back of your mind, you have to understand the construction techniques that are available to you in Western Australia and Australia generally. But it's trying to get that content within the documents in, in a cohesive way to uh, allow that then to be brought through by the project architect then who's Hassel. We were very good at you know that relationship that we had with Hassel and the project architect working on that in particular. It was very good at just saying, look, this isn't really going to work. We're going to have to look at this a different way. And then you did have to revisit the design intent sometimes. But in the most part, I think the degree to which the design intent was captured was able to be followed through in the, in the eventual design and construction of it. So OTB Tower sounds like it was a very rewarding project for Kerry Hill. Did you want to tell us a little bit about another project where you used a DNC contract as well? You mentioned before uh, Forest Hall Residences. Do you want to tell us about that project? Yeah, well, uh, that was a project we got appointed to that in 2014. And Andrew and Nicola Forrest had made a donation to the universities of Western Australia. And part of that donation was to build the halls of residence for the scholarship 
to the, the, donated 65 million to have a scholarship, an international research scholarship. They wanted them to build a, a halls of residence that would be part of that. So we got appointed to be the architects on that. And a pretty smooth project that ran through design, development applications, all, all pretty smoothly. Now we knew from very early on that the university had the intention to have us innovated to the contractor once the contract was let. And that was fine, but we had heard quite a lot of different scare stories about innovation. And I suppose the reference back to the OTB, we'd had a pretty good experience with that sort of DNC project in the, the Australian context. So we were, we were generally happy with that process, but we were still, I suppose, wary because we hadn't yet been innovated to understand how the architect was then treated by the builder. And we'd heard horror stories, I'm sure a lot of people have about the builder pulling out the GAs from the tender set and said, right, that's what we're using to build this building and things like that. But, you know, so we went into the process thinking, is that the way this is going to roll? So from a design point of view, a documentation point of view, we, we then took us about some of the lessons that we'd learned from OTB in terms of that conversation we had about scope and trying to get as much into the documents as possible prior to tender. And this was before innovation obviously had occurred. And things like, you know, we were engaged to do all the interiors of this project, you know, trying to capture as much of the joinery elements, even the furniture, all the finishes, you know, whereas a lot of the times that can go into a DNC tender document as a, as a schedule, which, which is still got a, really like a performance criteria around the schedule as to what the interiors could be. We felt that it was really important to actually try and draw and specify as much of this as possible. Similarly, with the, with the architecture itself, we have a quite a complex cladding system of buildings, well, two-thirds of buildings, sandstone cladding, which has these breeze walls to the, the walkways, which access all the different uh, apartments. So I guess some people might think that with innovation contracts, you don't document very much. And when people say just you know the term like, oh, you document up to 30%, they think, oh, you're only documenting 30% of what you would normally document on a large building like that but it sounds like this still had quite a lot of detail thrown into the documentation of this project yeah and look the 30 percent thing is a bit of a nonsense really it's trying to place some kind of definition or limitation on how much documentation can be produced but it's also i think tied to fees and scope as well as to trying to i suppose measure how much work people can be done now i feel that Design is really important and the execution of design is really important. Then it's worth putting more energy in prior to tender to try and get as much design scope captured in the documents as possible because builders know how to build things a lot better than, than architects. And that's, 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 that's what to do. That's what their, their profession is. But you really don't want to be in a position where builders are designing everything on a project because... We're the design professionals, and that's that's really what the scope that we should be retaining within our profession uh, within these contracts. Well, with regards to the difference between UWA and the OTB Tower, how did the the project team 
differ? I suppose sitting client side, we have a lot less exposure on the OTB to the actual day-to-day running of the contract and management of that contract. And I suppose UWA were pretty good as well in that they got in an independent project manager who was really good at pushing things along and really good at managing that process up to tender, to tender negotiation, and then managing the design process prior to the, the award of the tender and the supposed challenges that were brought forward. So that project manager then became the superintendent on that, that contract as well. So, you know, you had the contractor obviously trying to propose lots of different alternatives uh, and as, as, a, as is a right to do so, and, and they should be doing that to try and, I suppose, push the limits of the, the design and see what they can, can't achieve because essentially contractors are, they manage contracts to make money, so it is always part of that, but they obviously have to deliver the quality uh, within time to maintain their reputation so they can get the next, the next contract the next contract. But that process was managed pretty well in terms of the dialogue then existed between the contractor and yeah. the client through through the project manager slash superintendent. Yeah, well, I guess that's a really good thing about having a superintendent position is that that person can field the initial request from the builder and because they're going to be speaking directly to the client, they'll already know, oh, no, the client doesn't want to, to change that area or, you know, I know that the, the architect worked really hard on this portion here, so let's just leave that alone. So, and, hmm. you know, we did have clauses within our date of novation which would have allowed us to go to the, uh, the client if we felt that the design was being pushed too far by the, uh, the contractor or the the parameters of the design were being pushed too far. And we, we never, ever felt the need within that project to even consider that, you know, and, and really post-novation, none of the correspondence that we were required to, none of the design changes, which the, the contractor wanted us to consider. In any way, we felt it wrote the design. The, uh, they were a pretty good tier two builder, and you know, they had worked in the DNC climate quite a lot, probably in the, over this past, the 10 years leading up to Forest Hall. So they knew the way that it worked. And there was, there was never any appetite, I felt, to set up any kind of adversarial relationship with the architect. It was, it was always a very good understanding. They wanted, you know, you, you went to site and they had the renders, all the renders that we had done with the project up around the site office. And the conversations around design changes were always brought back to the first principles of, you know, what we're trying to achieve here and how can we do that? And I think I think you see that in the outcome. You see that in the eventual outcome that there was a collaborative methodology of, of working on that project through that DNC. Yeah, it must be nice having having those meetings on site where where the question does come up about changes, and. If, if everyone comes into there and everyone knows their position, just like a sports team, and you can sort of say, okay, this is what we're thinking. Okay, guys, architect, designer, say what you, you'd like to do and builder, you tell us how you want to build it. If everyone's sort of playing their part in the team, then it must be much easier to kick goals. Yeah, mm. definitely. 
Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you so much, Sean, for sharing your experience. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing more of the work from yourself and the rest of the people at Kerry Hill Architects in the future. So thank you so much. No problem, Daniel. Anytime. Tom Henniker is an architect who started eConstruct Consulting, a consulting business that offers architecture, construction and estimating services. Tom started the company to help builders with contract administration, cost estimating and tender strategies. Often working with design and construct contracts as well as novation contracts as both an architect and contractor, Tom has intimate knowledge of the advantages and challenges in different construction procurement methods. All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going up there? Yeah, good. Going really well, thank you. So I appreciate the invitation to have a chat with everyone. Yeah, no worries. So if we come back to the theme that we're talking about with novation, um, what do you think structure-wise is really important to have in place so that it's an effective contract to use or procurement method to use on, on your projects? I think the most important thing is the team that you're actually putting in place to execute the entire project. You know, when you talk about novation, you know, I'm of the opinion that you need to have early engagement from a number of parties involved um, and then it's up to, you know, the driver of that. Generally, the driver is normally the architect or or the designer uh, working direct with the client just because they're sort of getting that project off the ground. But it's pulling in the, the advice from a structural engineer or pulling in the advice of some hydraulics to, to sort of get that to a point where, everyone sort of can can sort of mark themselves off being like we're aware of sort of the potential risks that are involved. Also, I'm working with a lot of builders and obviously we run our own construction company as well. Pulling in the, I guess, the expertise of the builder is important, you know, and, and I feel like because of, the, because of the way that tendering works, pulling in a builder seems like sometimes a strange thing to do because your client a lot of the time wants to see comp- competitive quotes and wants to see a number of them. But the disadvantage of it is you're losing all of that knowledge and all of that input that enables the project to be executed potentially better but also reduces a lot of risk on the on the back end of the execution of it. Um, and that's for all parties involved. You know, like the builder come the day that he starts demolition and excavation maybe pulling up potential drawing faults from day one, you know, and if, if he was involved potentially earlier, then that can be reduced and, and sort of keeps a relationship not only with, say, the designer and the, the client, but also the, the builder and the client. And, you know, it's almost like the three work together versus sort of having this mentality of, uh, of architect versus builder. Yeah, and, and do you think that sometimes problems can arise uh, where it's a timing issue. So if, as you say, the designer and the client have been working through the project for a long time and then the builder comes through and the documentation 75% complete and then they might suggest some very large value management proposals, do you think that's sort of a, a timing problem and do you think that having an even earlier contractor engagement could get get rid of some of those stresses where people are saying, you know, oh, we've spent so long on design and now we have to cut things out. Do you think it's better if it's much earlier in the process? Yeah, look, it's very dependent on project to project. You know, like I, I think I think it's up to the professional who's driving the project to understand what the physical abilities of each individual bring to the table. And this and this only comes through learning physical relationships with individuals and being like 
I know that this is sort of my capabilities, you know, from my end, I draw on these capabilities and, you know, and get it to this point, which enables it to remain at a point where we can continue forward versus going backwards. I, I see a lot, unfortunately, you know, because we work heavily in, in sort of estimating and working with tenders and stuff, I'd probably say that prior to COVID, that probably 20% of the projects we estimated would never go to the point of construction. And that's purely because budget management wasn't a big factor in how that project was procured from a design to construction perspective. And that's where an early engagement could have pulled up the potential issues that are in place with a budget constraint, but also even through design development components, you're going to have scope creep. It's, you know, it's impossible to manage with clients to the point of where, you know, you can't tell them that they can't have this particular bench top, you know, which is going to cost another $5,000, but they're already at a point which we've indicated that they're over budget, you know, and if anything, we need to be slicing out money yet, they're still adding. Um, So the good thing is that having the early engagement, what it does is remove the designer from having to always be the point of what the value is, throwing a, a number at it which may not have as much, I guess, information wrapped around it from quantities perspective, trade influence, and put that reliance on the builder. And look, the builder's not always going to be able to give a number that is going to be fixed and locked at 25% through the start of the project in terms of its design perspective. You know, they're going to, but they can work with you side by side. Um, and that's where our consultant, consultancy business actually started. It it worked directly with builders, and we found that builders were getting pulled in on early engagement. However, it's a costly exercise for a builder to be engaged two or three times. You know, spending a lot of hours on working with side by side with the architect, and then unfortunately, even at the point of where you know it's all approved and ready for construction, he then gets put up against open tender. Then all of a sudden, he had a situation where he's like, "Oh, well." You know, I've just I've just invested you know five thousand dollars worth of my time, and now I've been put up against three other builders who did nothing, and I've done this all for free. And that's where the idea about a solution like our business came about. In architects also then approaching us to be like, well, let's just get a consultant on board, similar to how you would work with an engineer, or similar how you would work with a, a surveyor, and just get them for what what they can provide for that project and then work with the advice on that side. Yeah, and I guess, you know, to sort of mitigate that as well, it's it's a good idea to actually pay the builders for their time if they're going to be putting in all of those hours. Like you're saying, five grand can be, can be you know, a lot of money for, for, you know, maybe a small-scale builder. Definitely, and that's the thing. We're only talking small-scale, you know, like as in the residential side of things, you know, like there isn't the ability to build in, you know, a tendering cost component where, you know, on a commercial perspective, there's a divvy up of, of a particular amount of money for having people tender on the project, where unfortunately we're not going to get there on residential side and it to be managed in that degree. But the understanding or the awareness to the designer um, to, to actually understand and explain to the client that there is actually a massive amount of time involved, even from an early engagement perspective. And, you know, that this is only going to save you on the back end. So it's almost like a capital investment is the best way for a designer to look at it, I believe, is that, you know, you spend $5,000 today and I can guarantee you this build is either going to pull up over budget uh, positions early or he's actually going to bring things to the table that are only going to 
help reduce some uh, over-engineering possibilities or assist with some design um, detailing that can then save $10,000 come the construction time. And that's what I normally see and that's what we normally, you know, in terms of the builders I work with, our, our firm actually bring to the table. Yeah, because you've got such a unique practice that does have a building side to it, can you give me an example of a project where you guys use the DNC elements of the two companies to, to the best effect and then also a project where you went novation and it worked out really well? Yeah, sure. So one of the projects we've just signed contracts just recently for, this one here we actually got brought in being the fact that the client felt like the previous architect hadn't uh, really captured, I guess, what their brief is and what their initial scope was and they're sort of going in circles a little bit. But they were very interested in making sure that budget control was a big part of their strategy and moving forward. So the way that we sort of walk into that in terms of the, the way that our business is structured is that our building side it has its own ABN and is completely separated from the consultancy business to reduce the liability factors that the, the two could have if something was to, to go wrong. But in this particular project, from our end, what happens is that the consulting side of the business um, and the architectural side put together the traditional fee proposal that any designer would from Aaron, we're very because the processes and, and early engagement is um, pulled in directly. You know, our scope of works is actually very inclusive of a lot of cost structures, a lot of pre talks about structure um, in terms of the the constructability of how it's going to work. So from there, that particular project has within its briefing the breakups of that, and that will be a costing at the end of uh, sketch design another costing at pre-DA, and that obviously from our end can you be utilised then as a submission for the costing with the DA, um, and then from there we'll then make any cost adjustments at the end of the council approval period, and then from there if there's anything that needs to be tweaked or adjusted based around the design because of the for the construction certificate, then we'd make it then and there. And what that does is make a very clean structure of the traditional means of how the architect would be carried through in that process. And we overlay that with the, the sort of construction or early engagement of the, the required knowledge to, to sort of cover that aspect through. And then from that point there, the it's then the conversation with the client about being um, very open with them, saying that, you know, this is the end point of the design phase from where we sit. You know, the engagement or the contract types will be now discussed in how we best move forward for preparing this for construction and this is if you want to go ahead with us in continuation of this project so you know we felt that it's very important for us to to and i think because of the way the structures work it's very clean that if there is any if there is any um signs that the client is not happy with the process that that's a good very clean point for them to leave um, and engage their own builder. There's no obligation to, to obviously engage that builder as well. And then we're in those just in those conversations, direct talking about contract types. Can you give us an example now, a client where you used a novation contract and the results ended up being really great for the client? Yeah, sure. Um, the project that we 
have worked with with uh, Novation contract types being carried through was um, a project at the entertainment quarter and the reason that the design and the construction needed to follow a suit was because the actual finance or some of the finance was being provided by the entertainment quarter itself um, in terms of uh, they're wanting one of our clients to to be uh, brought to the entertainment quarter and part of that was that for them to sort of make the move and assist with their fit out of, uh, of what needed to be done was that they would obviously cover design cost, you know, uh, requirements for council submissions and things like that, and then also down to the point of the construction costs uh, involved. Then from there, it was talking about direct with the client of being like, you know, the, you've got this amount of money up front to utilise for, for getting from here to here. And when you say from here to here, what does that mean? Uh, here to here is, I guess, from complete, you know, sketch design all the way through to, to the fit out being completed. This space that was provided was actually really quite large. So we needed to come at a point quite quickly where costings needed to be put on paper and concepts needed to be to, to be drawn up relatively quick to just get that understanding of going for for this particular client who hadn't signed any contracts at that point with the with the entertainment quarter was the fact of being like, can the design and can the construction get what this client wants for this size of this space and this meant that you know for this space itself it had its own cafe sort of section built into it but then it moved into a complete large bakery component that was built into the space as well and that bakery actually then supplied to their other bakeries um, or their other cafes as the main source of their production and then the other areas could reduce the amount of production. So they were really going through a, a scaling component within their business. But, it, you know, it meant that there was new appliances that were being purchased and there was things that they hadn't really used before either. So you can imagine from a design perspective, you've got a client that has done things, say, through uh, making cakes um, or pies in a more traditional manner and now they're actually wanting to automate their own processes with bringing in, you know, uh, appliances um, to make their jobs uh, a lot easier. And, and the big emphasis there is to, to, to reduce the amount of labour that needs to, to make every individual pie. So from our end, it was actually quite a complicated structure to sort of get right uh, bang on at the start of that job. Yeah, I mean, with any kind of procurement method, results are really driving what choice is the best for that particular project? Do you think that's a that's a huge thing, like you were saying, you know, making sure that the project team is all together and on, on board? Do you think that's a huge thing that everyone just needs to be kept aware of what the goals are and how they're changing throughout a project if things start to change and then the client starts to think, you know, I wish we were using a different contract or I wish, you know, before we go into this, can we talk about a contract which has more flexibility? Yeah, I think as in, you know, you raise a, a point, I guess, that can be a little bit spicy sometimes because, you know, you may be the driver bringing in all of the team and then you might be the one that's actually asked to leave the team. So, yeah, it, right. you know, like it can and look like as in it hasn't happened to us, but, it, it, you know, obviously it can happen, you know, like you you as the designer, your obligation is to potentially assist with putting a team together. However, if you can't achieve your design goals, then, you know, like you're at risk of, of the rest of the team continuing on and you being taken out of that design team. So 
you know, like I think it's I think when you yeah when you talk about relationships, you know, it, it's the idea that you're in there for one outcome, and the outcome is to provide the best project possible. You know, and I and I feel like sometimes you know you might hear, uh, especially on the smaller end of things. There is a bit of a misconception that if a designer brings in a builder, there's sort of like some some dirty business going on. And I don't really know where that's created from. I think it might be some old mentalities that are sort of being carried through. But, you know, as I think the industry is is moving quite fast now and I feel like, you know, you've got a lot of eager individuals and a lot more learning being spent because I think the crossover is a lot greater now that um, and, and micromanagement now is sort of happening more and more and more that I think you've just got to take it on board that, you know, you're in it for your component of work. And like anything, if your component of work isn't satisfactory or it's not, you know, at the same level or you're not getting the outcomes, then accepting that, you know, this may not work is something that you've always got to have in the back of your head. But at the end of the day, you know, your contract and how you sort of write that contract needs to be very open and very clear from that early start point. And, you know, with Novation, I think it's the relationship then, not say just with the people you bring to the table, but your relationship with the client that becomes extremely important. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for being part of the the podcast. It was really fantastic to hear about yeah everything you've been going through with with balancing you know your architectural services company as well as the construction. And yeah, it's, it just seems like you know choosing the right procurement method is such a an important part of of every project. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing more of your projects in the future. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. This has been Episode 7 of Season 2 of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thanks to our guest in this episode, Nick Lorenz, Sean McGiven and Tom Henniker for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Bowles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.